Welcome to Golf and the Good Life, your guide to golf travel across the pond. I'm DJ Jones. He's Connor Evers. One of us is currently enjoying sunny Florida. The other is <laughs> is dealing with some sub-zero temperatures, I think, up in Cincinnati. Connor, I don't know what to say, man, other than you're going to get a warm-up here in the next few days, as far as I know. I can't wait to get to Florida, DJ. I'm getting sick and tired of salt and cold and having to bundle up every single day i do look good in my uh, my castle stewart stocking cap and uh my footjoy gloves but <laughs> i digress it is still cold no matter which way you look at it but yeah looking forward to the pga show when this episode comes out it will be wednesday of the show so looking forward to meeting with our partners from across the pond as well as all the pga professionals that are either uh, traveling with us in 2024 in this upcoming upcoming travel season or else in uh, looking for expeditions in the future in 2025 and beyond. So looking forward to that. And we also have our reception uh, event that evening, this this evening, I should, I should say. Uh, so looking forward to, again, more conversations with our partners from across the pond and uh, kind, of, kind of the kickoff into the 2024 travel season. So um, like I said, looking forward to the PGA show, but also looking forward to uh, some warm weather, DJ. Absolutely. Well, it's always a great week. It's always a very busy week. Uh, and I'm, I always enjoy having everyone down here. You know, it's the, it's the one week a year where uh, you guys come to me as opposed to the other way around. But yes, it's always a, just a great productive several days on the show floor. Look, if you're at the PGA show and you're roaming around, stop by 3873. We would certainly love to, to say hello. Uh, obviously, we've got a pretty chalk block calendar, I should say, at least on the first day, especially. Uh, it seems like everyone loves to get in, do their meetings and go play some golf the other two days. But, uh, <laughs> but we got a busy th three days ahead for sure. But back to today's episode. Today, we are introducing a new series that we are calling Legendary Links. You know, this is our equivalent of kind of a deep dive on a particular golf course. You know, all of our episodes to date have been either about a particular region or maybe, you know, strategies for planning your trips and so forth. But so many of these courses, you know, the history is so deep and the these courses are so beloved and so forth that we really felt like we had to do some episodes on individual courses. Now, we're not going to go so deep that, you know, we're talking about every time they moved a bunker on the 12th hole. We're going to hope to keep this useful for everyone, whether you're planning or counting down to a trip. And we're going to lead off with a course that is near and dear to all of our hearts here at HMB, and that's Royal Dornick. What has happened with Royal Dornick over the last, I'm going to say the last 10 years or so, has just been absolutely incredible. You know, it went from a course that was sort of this outlier, only the most intrepid travelers got up there because it was so far, quote, north, you know, of everything else. Today, it is one of the, you know, most sought after tea times uh, for those who are planning trips. And it also happens to find itself in the top 10 or 20 golf courses in the world, depending on on who you're asking. So, so that's where we're going to start. And Connor, I'm going to, I'm really just going to kind of lean it off with a pretty open-ended question for you. And that is, you know, you've, you've been to Dornick, you, you know, obviously spent quite a bit of time on the links and so forth. 
What is it about Royal Dornick that makes it so special to so many people? First off, looking forward to this new series and specifically to talk about Dornick. As you said, it's special to my heart, to yours, and to uh, you know us as a team at H&B and a lot of our travelers. So um, just looking forward to doing like this deep dive, like like you mentioned. And I think kind of the first thing that makes it so special is just the the location. You know, it's it's secluded. I think that's my favorite thing, if you will. Yeah, it's about a four or so hour drive from Edinburgh, give or take. That's nothing for us, but from from locals, it it seems like that's uh, you know from from Scotland back to the states. So from the seclusion standpoint, it's it's pretty interesting. You know, it's it's fifty or so miles north of Loch Ness, and uh, you know eight degrees below the Arctic Circle. So just those factors alone, it's it's an interesting place just getting there. But I think what makes it special and more specific to me are the ties to to Donald Ross, and I've mentioned on the podcast before, but. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to college in North Carolina in the Sand Hills area at Methodist University and be a part of the PGM program and play tons of Donald Ross courses in and around that area in Pinehurst and you know out to the mountains of North Carolina and, and some other areas. So um, I've always been you know fascinated by Donald Ross and knowing you know someday being able to play. Uh, you know, Royal Dornick and, and, you know, that, that kind of, not so much a dream, but, you know, aspirations, if you will, came to fruition, you know, it was about a couple of years ago when I was able to play it. So a year and a half ago. Um, so I think that's kind of why it's just so special. Again, just playing a lot of Dornick courses and, and more specifically why there's that kind of relationship between, you know, Donna Ross and, and Dornick is Mr. Ross actually grew up and was born in the town of Dornick and you can actually visit his home while there. Um, I did that. It's, you know, it's a little, little home. There's a little, I think a, a blue sign. Uh, it's you know pretty cool kind of paying your respects to to mr ross which is great um again he grew up on on playing the links there which kind of shaped his golf career as a you know future architect here in the states and got a lot of the attributes of the the links there at, at dornick and you know moved them to the states so there's a lot of courses in america that kind of resemble a lot of those same features especially around the greens you know piners number two and a few others it's it's kind of funny how uh, you know, those courses kind of resemble Dornick in a very unique and interesting way. I was, like I said, fortunate enough to play it for the first time. My regret when playing it was I didn't get to experience it with anyone else. I, I played by myself, played uh, played it around around midday, and the weather was looking a little interesting. I mean, it was it was looked pretty nasty. And uh, get to the first tee, it starts raining. Wind starts coming in and, you know, it's just one of those days where you got to keep the ball low and just keep moving on, you know, play a hole one and uh, play hole two, you know, walking from the second green to the third tee box. And if you played Dornick before, you know, it's a, it's a special walk because you know what you get to look forward to. And I, I knew that walk was special going to it from seeing photos and until you get to experience it for the first time, it's, it's pretty special. And it's it's kind of weird, but uh, I don't think I've told you this, DJ. I kind of started to tear up because, again, it was raining really windy. And right when I got to the third tee box, all the rain, all the wind went away. And it was the same way for the rest of the day. I mean, I played in like a pullover for the rest of the round. And it was just one of those things by myself that, um, you know, I'll never forget. It's it's pretty magical. And that's why I got emotional. I mean, grown man crying about a golf course, but <laughs> but it's just that special. And, you know, to get up to that area again, essentially the the remoteness of it um, just makes everything more immense. So it's kind of my initial experience uh, of, of being there in Planet DJ. Well, you know, that's so well said. And it really speaks to 
things like what you were ex- describing with approaching the third tee and the emotion that you felt, but also the fact that at that time, you know, the sun comes out. It's just funny to me, you know, how often things like that just have a way of happening. You know, there are so many moments that I can speak to, Dornick and elsewhere around the Lynx courses overseas, where you pause, there's a there's a tug at the you know, in the, in the back of your throat and you, and you realize, gosh, this is special. And they almost always for me have happened when I have been by myself. So many of those moments happen when I'm just wandering the course, but going back to what you were talking about with Donald Ross, you know, it is such a cool connection between this little village up in the highlands of Scotland, up on the same latitude as Juneau, Alaska, and this little village in North Carolina that is this golf, you know, mecca that these two places have been, you know, connected in such a way. You know, the members from Royal Dornick, they often come over. I think they have an alternating year match with members from Pinehurst, uh, or at least the Pinehurst area, you know, and it's just a great thing for the game and really just kind of speaks to part of what makes the game, you know, so special. But further on Dornick and the, the history of the club, you know, it, it obviously golf here dates long before Donald Ross. Uh, It actually was first played in the town back in 1616. They think it was played even er earlier than that, but that date comes from a receipt for some golf clubs purchased by the Earl of Sutherland. So that's how long golf has been around. The the first course was a, I think it was a nine-hole course, may have even been fewer holes than that. But Old Tom was brought in to extend the links and design the first course. And some of those original holes that he laid out or at least the original greens are in play currently on the Struy course, which is the the quote unquote relief course for Royal Dornick. But um, another neat connection to the states is Andrew Carnegie had his uh, estate at Skibo, which is nearby. He actually gifted the club with a silver shield for their club competition, and today. It's still played for every year. The Carnegie Shield is one of the most prestigious amateur events in Britain. And again, just another really neat connection between you know our side of the pond and again, this little town. The original course, it, it, it sustained some damage during World War II. There, it was actually, the ground was actually used for, I think, training exercises for the war. And so they had to um, not only redesign much of the course, but then they extended it over some newly acquired land. And so holes roughly six through 11 were quote unquote new after the war. George Duncan designed those holes. And again, if you've played Dornick, those are some some really outstanding holes. I mean, the sixth in particular is just an absolutely world-class par three with a green that you just write is no good uh, to say the least. But those two things between the long and rich history at Dornick, you know, in terms of the course and 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 the length that golf has been played in this little town, and then the ties to Donald Ross, who obviously was the favorite son who's come to America, who does all of these great courses, you know, Seminole and Pinehurst and what have you. It's just really neat and really drives home why more American golfers need to be heading overseas to go see it. Aside from all of that, like we said, it's one of the top 10 in the world. And to that point, Connor, I'm going to have you run through some of the, the highlights along the course, because as we have discussed in past episodes, 
my memory for golf courses escapes me the moment <laughs> I walk off one. So you, on the other hand, I think you might have actually remembered every shot you've ever hit, which is pretty, <laughs> pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. I, close, but not, not, I try to remember the the good ones, <laughs> but um, yeah, talking a little bit more about the course and kind of the routing and, you know, a few holes, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but it, the, the course itself and how the course is routed, it's, it's kind of in an S shape. So if you got an aerial picture of the course and you look at it, like, if you think of an S, if you can visualize it, that's kind of how the holes, you know, neander and the top of the S isn't the first hole. It's, it's, actually out by the, the ninth green and the 10th tee box. And then it kind of meanders back um, to, to one and 18, but it's a really interesting routing. And because of the the land movements and how the holes, you know, are, are routed, it's not like a, a, you know, out and in, like, for example, North Berwick is most of the holes are kind of that way, where if you do have that prevailing wind, I mean, you know, essentially your, your first, you know, going, going out or downwind and then, and then coming in could be into the wind or vice versa. Whereas Dornick and Muirfield and a few others, the the winds that may be prevailing, it plays differently from 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 different holes, so it makes it even more of a challenge. Kind of those those big holes. I mean, the third, as I've already mentioned, I don't have to really talk too much more about it, but it really opens up the course and uh, you know makes it makes it great. Um, again, you can kind of see everything from there. Again, one and two, you don't really see the ocean at all, but then once you get to that third, not only do the essentially the rest of the holes open up, but you, you have a great view of the ocean from, from going in. One of the bigger holes and more kind of famous is the 14th, which is named Foxy. Um, some of the members of the club joke that they have more children than pars on Foxy, which I believe that it's, it's a tough one. I did not make par myself. Have you made a par DJ on Foxy? Never. Yeah. Never come yeah. close. <laughs> kind of like kind of fun wise. I kind of want to keep it that way, but um, you know, it, it's, it's a tougher hole, um, you know, from the white tees, it's about 450 yards or so. And it's a bunkerless hole. There are no bunkers on, on the hole itself. The hole slightly moves right to left from the tee box. So it demands a right to left tee shot. And then your second shot, depending on where you're at, you know, ask for a, a for a cut from a, you know, right, right-handed player, a left to right shot. And the, the kind of the bigger features of the hole is on the right side. Um, there's some grass moundings that start. I, I don't know the exact, you know, yardage of kind of when they start, I would say probably about 160 or so from the, from the green, that's kind of when they start. So again, it's a bunkerless hole. It's long. It demands two very, very hard shots um, to get to the green. And there's a reason why in, in Tom Doak's confidential guide that it's in his gourmet choice of some of his best, best holes in, in GB and I um, it's one of my favorites. And a lot of our members that travel with us at H and B it's their favorites too. you know, one that uh, it's very challenging, like I said, but you know, has some good reward if you play two excellent shots and have a couple good putts. That's absolutely what it takes. And a little bit of luck as well. Fair, probably, fair. probably more than anything. Uh, no, I've never come close to parring Foxy. I think I've made bogey. Uh, I've never been able to hold the green. We're, we'll get into some additional holes and moments around the course uh, here in, in a moment. But, you know, for all of Dornick's history and its greatness and so forth, one of the things I, I think that I, you know, admire about the club has been their, you know, their approach to the evolution of golf and the yeah. evolution of the course. They they have a, I'm going to say a, a somewhat enlightened approach to it in that so many clubs overseas, the tendency is to to view their their course and and even, you know, some of their customs and, you know, around the club in general 
as like this frozen in time snapshot. And as we have seen over the past, you know, let's say 30, 40, 50 years, you know, the game of golf has evolved so much. And, you know, as it really has done ever since Dornick was founded, I mean, the golf ball has gone through so many versions, if you will, from the, from the time of old Tom Morris. But Dornick has taken an approach that sort of embraces that change. It's not that they're out there changing their course every time they, they, the golf ball gets longer or, the, or a new, new piece of technology comes out, but they're, they're willing to look at it and say, okay, how do we improve just a little bit? You know, how do we just continue that, you know, that continuous improvement that, you know, anyone in business really should be striving for. And at the end of the day, you know, Dornick is a business and they're, you know, they have a membership to serve and visitors to serve and so forth. And I think, you know, there are some great examples of this. You know, number one is we talked about it on another episode. They're building a new clubhouse. This is a project that has been several years at least in the works and you know they're they've they're essentially finally you know moving forward with it but again it's not something it wasn't like a knee-jerk thing of hey let's just go build a new clubhouse you know they they, they took their time and they're doing it right and you know they broke ground just the other day and it should uh it should debut before their 150th anniversary uh which i would think is coming up in i guess 2027 if i'm doing that math uh, correctly but the other big example is out on the course, and it's the seventh and eighth. To kind of walk through what Royal Dornick has done recently, Neil Hampton, general manager at Royal Dornick, joined us you know, several years ago and talked through the changes that they were doing for the, to these two holes. And I think that there's really no better source to, to go to for this than, than this clip. So, so here's Neil talking through the new seventh and eighth. But yes, back to the point of the story is that George Duncan, we reckon the, 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 the local... The local rumor is, the local stories are that George Duncan actually pegged out the seventh hole right along the top of the hill or along the top of the bluff there. Uh, but some unscrupulous local uh, during the night moved the pegs inland. Uh, and then when the guys came to build it, they thought, oh, that's strange. That's not, what, not where we thought the hole was going, but built it in line of the pegs anyway. And so we're really, we think, just putting it back where George Duncan had originally designed the hole and putting back to, to what he envisaged a classic links hole across the top of the, the hill would be with an infinity green at the end and stunning views that currently we only get from the seventh tee, we'll get from every single pace that you walk along the seventh fairway. I think the, the, the one extra that we're getting out of not just putting the seventh hole back where we think it should have been is that we're just going to eke out the length of the eighth hole just a little bit so that driving over the top of the hill, as you know, past the stake will be a much longer, a much harder shot. So therefore, more people will play from the top of the hill into the eighth green. As you know, the eighth green is a bowl shape, which gathers the ball. And, and we feel that that's the way the hole was designed to be played from the top of the hill with a longer wood or maybe a longer iron, but into a green that gathers the ball. Whereas most of Dornoch greens are upturned saucers that shed the ball. The eighth and also the 17th gather the ball. So playing from the top of the hill isn't as hard a shot as you may think. And we want more people to experience that uh, when we when the hole is completed. So they get that feeling. There's, to me, I love it when, when you're standing on top of the hole and you hit your, your second shot or your whatever shot it is way up into the sky and it hangs there forever because it's got so much further to fall. And, it's, and it is a, a, a joyful feeling when it falls on the green and it gets gathered in and it, it gets rolls close to the hole. So we want more people to see that and experience what the designers had in mind back in the late 40s. So there's a few things that, for me, come out of that clip. Number one is, 
I can just completely picture a group of unscrupulous members saying, we don't like this new seventh hole. We're just going to go out and move the stakes and see if no, see if anybody notices and they got away with it. And it's, it's remarkable to, to think that that's, that's potentially the case if that story, you know, actually holds up. But the other thing again, is just the amount of care that Royal Dornick put into this decision. You know, that, that sound, that sound bite is from seven years ago and the seventh you know, just came into play in back in I think the later part of 2020 and the eighth T just came into play just this last season. And, and so it shows they just, they're, they're willing to evolve with the times, but yet they've taken their time and they've done it the right way. And, you know, for me, they took a hole that I don't really have any memories from at the seventh and turned it into an absolute showstopper in terms of the, the view looking down the hole out to the coast. But really for me, it's about the second shot on the eighth. That description that Neil gave is just absolutely spot on. And, you know, I, I, I walked out there at one point and dropped a ball at the stake and tried to replicate that feeling that Neil describes. And he's right. There's nothing else like it. And, but what's also kind of unique is that they've also created something there that is, again, that's, unique within the course in that so many of the greens at Dornick repel the ball away and yet they've taken advantage of the eighth and how it gathers the ball in. So in the process, for me, they've created a pretty, an outstanding, you know, favorite moment out on the course of which there are several. Connor, I'm curious, what are, you know, what are some of your favorite moments from, from your round or just the rest of the time walking the links at Dornick? Yeah, I mean, some of my my favorite holes, I would say, are, are probably the fifth as well as the seventeenth. Kind of starting with the fifth, and you know, it it's a it's a shorter par four, but it's extremely strategic. You know, the fairway contours from from you know left to right, and I would say, you know, looking at the hole, I wish we had video on this, PJ. I'll try to explain as much as possible, but, but with audio, but it kind of demands a little bit of a cut shot for a right right handed player. But there's, I believe, four or five bunkers. I think it's five bunkers actually on the right side of of you know of the of the hole, um, just right off the fairway. So again, the fairway moves left to right. So you know you can hit a perfect drive and be in the fairway bunkers. And I think I when I played it for the first time, there was a lot of times I would hit my drive and be like, oh, that's that's perfect, right down the middle. And maybe it had a little cut or a little draw. And I walk up, I can't find the darn thing. And sure enough. You know, I'm on a little bit of a slant and I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm leaning to the right. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's in the bunker. If you've played Dornick before, you'll know it. Those fairway bunkers are deep. They collect a lot of golf balls. And even if you have, you know, 130 or 150 yards, you're going to be up against that lip a lot of times. And you're just getting a, you know, lob wedge and kicking sideways out. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's, you know, net, net negative gain for yardage or maybe go backwards just with the slope too. So um, again, just another factor that makes Dornick, you know, brilliant, not even just the fifth and, uh, you know, fifth, fifth specifically, but the course in general, you know, back to the fifth too. I mean, you, know, you don't need a driver off the hole um, from the white tees. It's about a 260 yard carry to the last um, ferry bunker, but then it's about 300 yards or so to the, the green side bunkers. So again, you have to be really strategic with your shot um, an elevated green. So you also can't see it and really have to hit your approach shots 
perfect. Um, a lot of those greens are built up where if you miss them just to the left or just to the right, I mean, not only do you have a, a chip, you have a pitch and it's sometimes blind. You can only see the top of the flag. Um, so that's kind of the fifth there. And, and you know, once you kind of start playing, you know, from the fifth and on, you get, again, kind of get to see the ocean and you get to play a little bit closer as well coming in on the back nine. And as I said, the other kind of hole that I, I really like is the 17th. You know, it might not be on everyone's list, but it's quirky, kind of like the eight. And I love quirky. <laughs> Maybe the, the the listeners have have learned from over the past episodes. I love kind of quirky holes, um, but it's definitely on kind of my list of one of my favorites there. You know, as the eight, it's kind of two different levels of fairways. Um, you know, the first comes to an end about 200, 215 yards or so from, uh, you know, from the blue tees or about 200 yards from the white tees. And you have to really decide if you're going to play an iron off the tee or if you're going to hit something a little bit longer and go to the second level of the fairway, which drops down, give or take about 20 feet. And it's completely blind from the tee box. So, you know, the first kind of shot demands a cut. And then the second shot, you know, you can kind of play a draw or, or a cut, but why I prefer the 17th kind of over the eighth. Again, they're very similar is on the left side of the green on the 17th there's it's kind of a mini punch bowl i would kind of call it so i hit my tee shot on the top level and had a you know mid mid iron um, and played a cut off the left bank and it actually the ball kind of ran and sloped down towards the hole so i don't know it was really really fun to play i love that i love when there's a feature like that where you can play the ground game you can land it short of the hole and it, and it goes up to the green so um that's kind of why i like the 17th again kind of its quirkiness being strategic but the course allows you to you know play some different holes or different different shots it just makes you think so many times um again it you know if you're playing the white tees you know on on paper it's not that long of a course but you know again depending on how you know the wind and some other factors and you know where you place your tee shot can really go into you know a long or a short day in the links so that's kind of my favorite uh, holes dj and and just kind of areas of the course well, I agree with you on the 17th. That it's, I think it's a very fun hole. The way you played it, leaving it on top, if our founder and chairman, Sam Baker, is out there listening, who is a longtime Dornick member, that is how he plays the 17th. He gave me that piece of intel before my first mm. visit, and that's really the only play I've ever played it. And it might be a little unorthodox because you're leaving yourself, obviously, a, a longer shot in, yeah. but that view from the top and being able to see the green, I think, is a is a much bigger advantage than being down below and, and trying to, you know, gauge a, an approach to a, to a somewhat elevated green. My favorite has to be the second. And like yours, it might be a somewhat unorthodox pick, but mm. there's an old joke around Dornick that the most difficult shot on the course is your second to the second. That comes from the fact that first off, it's a par three. It's only about 170 yards, 175, depending on what tee you're playing. It might even be shorter than that, but the green is very narrow drops off severely on both sides. I mean, it's, it is the poster child of, I don't remember which broadcaster it was that said, you know, or that described Pinehurst greens as an upside down. I was trying to stop the ball on a VW bug uh, roof, but that's kind of what you're doing at the second. And it also has two of the deepest bunkers in Britain, short of the green. They might not be the deepest on the course, but they feel that way for sure. I've seen golfers just go ping-ponging from left to right, left to right. And before you know it, you know, you've walked off with a with a triple. I actually, there's no shame in saying that if the pin's up front, I will lay up. 
short of the bunkers into the kind of the open area in between them and then hut up from there. And I've made some pretty easy pars that way, but I've also made some pretty dumb double bogeys leaving it in the bunker uh, short and then, you know, going over the green and, and so forth. So it's a great little par three. It's kind of almost the opposite of Donald Ross's gentle handshake because, you know, you've walked off the first, which is a fairly straightforward par four. And then bang, you've got this, you know, this, this par three that can pretty well wreck your, your front nine. If you're, if you're not careful, my other favorite part about Thornick or one of them, I should say, isn't even on the golf course. If you walk into the starter's hut, they have these little half walls that kind of make the perimeter of the hut inside. And the walls are labeled with various countries and regions of the world and so forth. And there's there's ball markers that have been left, you know, pegged into the wall, if you will, from from golfers who have visited from all over from from all of these countries. And on my very first visit, I took one of my ball markers from Ocala Golf Club here in Florida, and I pegged it to the wall, and I kind of forgot about it. And I've been back a couple times, and I didn't ever really think to walk in there. And on my last visit, I guess it would have been last October, I walked in, and wouldn't you know that that ball marker is still pegged into the wall. <laughs> and that, I just thought that was super neat. And so if you've got a, a spare ball marker, walk in, peg it to the wall, it's liable to be there for quite some time. I mean, my first visit was 2016. So that was seven years, eight years ago now. As I'm sitting here thinking about it, you know, the starter's hut is potentially impacted by the new clubhouse. So if anyone's from listening from Dornick, please keep that tradition going. Uh, if you move the starter's hut, leave the ball markers up from everyone else that has visited. But Connor, I think, uh, you know, we have checked a lot of boxes from here at Royal Dornick. Naturally, now I'm trying to decide when I'm going to get back up to the Highlands. Any uh, final thoughts from our first little Legendary Links episode before we sign off? This has been fantastic, DJ. I really enjoyed it. Uh, we we gave our kind of favorite holes there. And yeah, they may not be everyone's favorites, but I think that's what makes Dornick so good is because there's not that signature hole or, um, you know, those, maybe that stretch of holes that's really good and the rest are okay. I, you know, we, we picked, you know, two that again, may not be everyone's favorites, but that's what makes it. It's great because, um, you know, it's just, it just shows how good, good it is. Other factors, you know, when we're talking to groups and if you're looking at, you know, go into the highlands on your own or what have you, or just listen to this and maybe you're intrigued to go now, which I hope, hope it gave you some, some passion to potentially go in, you know, maybe in 24 or 25, I recommend groups playing it twice because at that point in time, you can really get the appreciation for it. I try to push a lot of my groups to do that. You know, you don't have a ton of time if you're doing a trip of other areas. Um, but you know, if you do have the time you know, try to play it twice, you just appreciate it even more. And I'll leave everyone with, with this. Uh, I, I have the course guide here. Um, I've been referencing that throughout the podcast and DJ has as well, but the description on the 18th, I'll just leave everyone that with, with this. This is the description of the whole, I should say, um, as you prepare to tee off, think of the number of people in the last 400 years who have stood where you are. Regardless of your round, be grateful for the energy to play and for the company and the scenery. Take a deep breath, swing slow and true, and give thanks for the exercise of body, mind, and spirit. I'm going to leave it with that too, because I don't think that there is anything to add to top, to top that. But as usual, for those listening out there, if you have any uh, questions or what have you about Royal Dornick, number one, 
We will have uh, some additional resources in the show notes. If you have any specific questions that you'd like to send, uh, DM us on social media or shoot them our way, golf at haversham.com. But otherwise, thank you for tuning in. We will be back again soon with another episode. But until then, we wish you plenty of golf at its finest and life at its best. <laughs>